Welcome to Web3 with A16Z, a show about building the next generation of the internet from the team at A16Z Crypto. That includes me, your co-host, Robert Hackett. Today's episode is the final installment in a limited series on Read Write Own, the new book by A16Z Crypto founding partner, Chris Dixon. Today's episode features Dixon in conversation with A16Z co-founders, Ben Horowitz and Mark Andreessen. Their discussion covers the internet's corporate takeover and how startups and creativity and innovation are affected, blockchains as inheritors of the open source ethos, where AI comes in, and the next battleground in global politics. This episode is a crossover from The Ben and Mark Show, which you can find and follow on the A16Z YouTube channel or wherever you get your podcasts. I deeply believe that most innovation comes from the edges. It's not just about sort of, you know, fighting over how a technology is built, right? It's fundamentally like, do we have an internet that creates incentives for entrepreneurs, for creative people? What is the society we want? What are the incentives we want? Do we want human creativity to still flourish? I think of it as very analogous to the arguments for open source software. The policy should be things that encourage entrepreneurship, creativity, innovation at the edges, not five big companies that control everything. What kind of internet do we want? The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investor or potential investors in any A16Z fund. Please note that A16Z and its affiliates may maintain investments in the companies discussed in this podcast. For more details, including a link to our investments, please see a16z.com disclosures. Hello, and welcome to The Mark and Ben Show. Today, we have a special guest, Chris Dixon, who has written a new book called Read, Write, Own. And uh, it's an extremely exciting book for us because it's the first book that really explains the very interesting and complex field of crypto and blockchains comprehensively, letting us understand why they're important, what they're going to be used for, and how they're going to change all of our lives. And so with that, I welcome Chris. Thanks for having me. So Chris, Read, Write, Own, the title is very interesting because it's not just the title of the book, but it's really a short description of a philosophy of networking technology and economics and how they work together and how they've evolved over time. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about like what does Read, Write, Own mean and how does it relate to the evolution of the, the internet technologically and economically? So what I want to do with the book, so I, I, you know, I've spent years talking about this topic and in, in those conversations realized that some of the sort of background context was missing. And, you know, I, I generally am of the school of thought that most business books don't need to be books. They could be blog posts <laughs> or podcasts <laughs> or tweets. In this case, I felt, <laughs> yeah, or tweets. In this case, I felt strongly that just the, the kind of minimum time, you know, kind of space you could explain these concepts was a book length, so 200 pages or so. And specifically, I wanted to kind of go back to first principles and discuss sort of how power and money works on the internet, which is really what the first half of the book is, right? And it's going through, and it does it as, as the title alludes to, the title's referring to kind of the, the three historical eras, that, as I view it, of the internet. And so the book kind of goes, it starts with the, um, you know, which you guys create, you know, were a huge part in creating the kind of first era, the commercial era of the internet, starting with Netscape. We really um, love that era, by the way. I know, I know. You got some. I'm I'm speaking to the people who invented a lot of this stuff, so I, I think you know a lot of this stuff. But but what I learned in the conversations with folks is a lot of people didn't have that background, and so specifically, 
the the idea that sort of the p- power on the internet comes through network effects. This is sort of the unit of power. You build a service like a social network or the World Wide Web or email, and these have network effects. And network in the, in the sort of offline world, typically, you know, moats, as Warren Buffett calls them, come through economies of scale and scope and more traditional kind of economic moats. On the internet, it's most the mo- the main moat that matters is network effects. And so what you do is if you're an entrepreneur or an investor, as we have been for the last, you know, 20 plus years, is you try to either build or invest in networks, right? And, and up until blockchains, we had two primary ways to build networks. We had one, which was the, the original approach of the web and email, which is via protocol, right? So you, a protocol is a set of standards adopted by a community and the important feature is that it has a network effect. Email gets more valuable as more people use it, but that network effect doesn't accrue to a single company, right? It accrues to the community. And so, and there's still room for for-profit businesses, obviously, as we've seen on the web, you know, millions of, of successful businesses are built on the web, but those businesses don't compete, you know, they, they, they generally don't, they don't compete by capturing the web's network effects. They compete by building better services, right? Right, right. And so right. My, the web, the web captures, captures the web's network effects. That's right. The, 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 the network effect, you always have a network effect, but it, it's a question of where it accrues. Does it accrue to a community or to a company? Right. And so in the first year of the internet, you know, it was dominated by these open protocols. And then, and then, you know, and then, and, and I, and the reason I call it the read era, this is not my terminology. This is a, common way to describe it is that most of the applications built in the 90s were were kind of around democratizing the consumption of information. So, you know, the kind of killer app of the 90s was a search engine. You type Abraham Lincoln into Google and you get a page about Abraham Lincoln. And that was this miraculous thing. But a lot of the applications were kind of skeuomorphic, as we call them, which meaning took and this happens with all new forms of media it sort of poured it over old old behaviors from magazines and brochures and encyclopedias and ported them to the internet <laughs> the newspapers early, some of the, they still are to some extent were formatted exactly like newspapers no, on exactly. paper <laughs> i mean they I think the Boston journal is still pretty much that way as is the new york yeah no they have and 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 the, if you go back and look at those websites to collect like 90s internet you know it was very much kind of magazines, brochures, kind of displaying. I mean, they had, you know, fun, fun little spinning graphics and stuff. But for the most part, it was, you know, people hadn't really explored the, the fact that the Internet was now a multi-way medium. Right. And then in the sort of so-called rewrite era in the 2000s, also called Web 2 era, people started, you know, you had a couple things happen. Broadband penetration started to hit a kind of critical mass. And then you had a wave of entrepreneurs who were saying, you know, this is Zuckerberg, Jack Dorsey, all of the kind of services that we use today who were saying, what, you know, have we really explored the, the full potential of this medium? And, and specifically, they wanted to explore the idea that it could not only democratize the consumption of information, but also the publishing of information. And that was the Web 2 movement. And the Web, so my, my kind of core argument, though, is in that process, and that was generally a very positive thing. We now have 5 billion people with supercomputers in their pockets who, you know, can share information and consume information costs $10 to get a smartphone. I think there's more internet users than, than have uh, access to running water. I mean, it's a miracle in many ways. So, you know, I don't want that to get overshadowed in the discussion. It's a very positive thing. But there was kind of a Faustian bargain in that 2000s era, which is in order to get that advanced functionality, we handed over control to a new, to, new type of internet service where the network effects were controlled by a company. Right. And so that's what you have with all of these modern Internet services and that. And then and then I think specifically you had kind of a horse race for those who were really in the weeds back then. There were there were things like RSS, which is a 
open protocol for doing social networking, which in the mid 2000s seemed like a credible competitor to some of the proprietary social networks. Of course, that lost, uh, you know, it's still around, but it's, you know, most people you talk to on the street don't say they use RSS as their social media. Uh, although one of the critiques of my book so far has been that RSS is actually very successful. I, it's a very <laughs> so, well, not not successful at its original vision at all. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. used like HTTP two. They're used as transport layers in some cases, but they're not. You know, they're not the the, the, the you, you don't ask an average person how you get your social media, and they say RSS, right? They go through a a company, and so anyway, so that kind of led my, my argument is that led to the current state today, where you have a small number of companies who through these these network effects have now consolidated power, right? So in that context, so what are blockchains? Blockchains are, they basically my core argument in the second half of the book is they provide a new way to create networks, a new way to create internet services. And specifically, they, they're kind of the best of both worlds of the prior two ways to build networks. They combine a lot of the societal benefits of protocol networks. So you have an incentive to build on the edges if you build a business or you build an audience as a creator, you own that business, you own that audience, you have full control of it. The economics are much more favorable to the network participants. So there's a whole series, and I have a series of chapters that go through the economics and the what's called composability, which is the ability to build services on top of other services, the way you do with open source software. I go through kind of network governance and I go through a lot of specific benefits of blockchains, but basically the core argument is it's the best of both worlds. You get the societal benefits of protocol networks, but a lot of the advanced functionality that people have come to expect from, from what I call corporate networks, that, that both lets you do, again, sort of skewmorphic native, it lets you build existing networks like social networks and existing applications in a, in a better way, I argue, but also unlocks a whole new class of new applications that couldn't have been built before. And in the last sort of third of the book, I go through seven areas, finance, social media, AI, couple of two sections on AI, so one on like kind of media and NFTs and another one called collaborative storytelling and just kind of go through specific applications, some of which are kind of skeuomorphic. They're doing old things better. And some of them are brand new things you couldn't do before. The last point I'll make is on AI. Obviously, we're all very excited about AI and the firm's investing very heavily. And I think it's a very positive technology and will have all sorts of benefits. I do think that that without a counterbalancing force, it will tend to be a centralizing technology in that it will kind of reward companies with large amounts of data and capital. And I, I argue that this makes the need for blockchain-based networks kind of more urgent because it's an important kind of counterbalancing force to offset that, that centralizing power. So Chris, so Peter Thiel has the famous line sort of theory that he's been saying for the last several years, which is AI is inherently communist and blockchain is inherently libertarian. And it's yeah. sort of based on this idea that and he sort of says, says the Chinese Communist Party loves AI, hates hates crypto. The sort of AI will lend itself extremely well to centralized power. And and you know today the the strong form of this argument would be today you see this with you know everything up to it, including you know Sam Altman going out to raise seven trillion dollars to build you know sort of proprietary chip fabs. But you know the the to build the big models, build big AI models is you know now it's in the billions of dollars and maybe heading into the trillions of dollars. And then you know blockchain at least has historically had a lot of affinity from the sort of liber you know sort of tech libertarian you know kind of uh, community and has had this sort of promise of decentralization do you think peter's framing is is would you make a, an argument as 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 direct as peter does there or what what would your version of that be yeah that's interesting i mean i i mean like the my default answer in this sort of argument in the book is is blockchains are decentralizing ai is centralizing so it's a it's sort of a less political <laughs> less political spin on the same idea i think I, I don't know it's an interesting question like i do think that there's some truth to the fact that culturally today you know, like 
you could you could separate the essence of the technology from who happens to be excited about it today, right? And the, I would argue the essence of blockchain is more about shifting power to the network participants, and that could you could do a spin on that that's kind of more left wing collectivist. Like you think about a DAO, and if you had all the artists in the world get together and share their art and collectively bargain with AI systems as to the licensing rights. Uh, of their, you know, almost like unionize, you can use a blockchain to unionize like that, that would obviously have a left wing spin. Bitcoin obviously has more of a, you know, kind of the anti government right wing spin. So so I, I kind of would decouple the essence of the technology from the specific implementations of it. I would also argue this is why it's kind of a shame that it's that if we're going to get into politics here, why, you know, the it's a shame that that a lot of that some folks on the left have decided they hate blockchains because they're basically opting out of participating in this world when they could be contributing to it and and sort of nudging it in the direction they want. Instead, they're just sort of saying it's the bad guy. And I think that has a polarizing effect and it tends to, you know, kind of politicize something that I would argue doesn't need to be as political, but. Yeah, I, I've got the answer, Mark. So <clears throat> AI is what communism actually is, a massive concentration of power. And blockchain is what communism is advertised to be, which is power to the people. So right. they're both left-wing. <laughs> Just depends which left-wingers you're talking to. Well, the other angle on this that's a little bit less partisan and maybe more philosophical, the other angle is AI, you know, at least in theory, AI represents central planning, right? In other words, like if, if you were going to build a machine to try to centrally plan the economy, it would be a large-scale AI system. And in fact, the, the, the Soviets, the USSR, actually had that as a mission for a very long time and various other communist regimes. There's always this kind of idea. There, there's actually a book on this from a, a, from a, from a modern communist called fully, luxury, fully Automated Luxury Communism, right? Which is sort of this idea that if you have smart enough machines in the center of the economy, they can plan everything and sort of realize the communist dream. And then correspondingly, you could say that blockchains, right, are economic, you, an economic freedom, economic liberation argument, which is, you know, sort of the, the fullest expression of a market economy you know, would be, it would be, it would be giant blockchains because it would be truly decentralized. And then, it, and then philosophically that would be in line with Hayek or, or Mises in sort of saying that actually no economic, economic activity should be coordinated bottoms up in a peer to peer fashion. Well, yeah, I always thought the best Hayek argument was that, that, no, that no central planning would ever be good as a distributed price signal economy, right. At figuring out what goods you need. And I guess what you're saying is maybe if the AI is good enough, the central planners can get can be be as good as the decentralized price signals. Well, that's the argument. So that's the argument the modern... Now, by the way, that's the argument the commies made. If you go back through the history of communism, that's the argument they were always making, which is we were, we're always on the verge of a breakthrough in yeah. centralized economic administration. And, you know, it's going to be the mainframe computer. It's going to be the PC. It's going to be, you know... Uh, I mean, there was a documentary years ago that interviewed the guy who ran uh, Gazplan, which was the central Soviet planning agency in the in the Kremlin. Um, and, you know, it interviews this poor guy in his office and his office is just like covered with, you know, just like a, it's just a blizzard of paper because he's like trying to plan the entire Soviet economy. Including um, like pricing just, out toilet paper, jeans, shoes, yeah. milk. Ev everything, everything in production orders for all of those things and trying to balance it. And this guy, by the way, this guy looked frazzled, right? This guy is like not, you know, th that actual job actually is like fairly stressful, apparently. Because like when you get it wrong, people starve to death. And so, but in, in the documentary, it was like an 85 or something. And he had just gotten a PC in his office for the first time. And he had a stack of floppy disks. And he was very excited because he's like, you see all this paper, I can put it on these floppy disks. And now, and now I'm finally going to be able to do this job right. 
<laughs> so, so there's, there's this long running, you know, the dream and yeah, you might say, yeah, giant AI, you know, giant LLM can do all this. I mean, the, the counter argument, the, Chris, to your point, the Hayek argument would be, you know, no, look, even if a computer can deal with, you know, analyze lots of details, the, the 8 billion or 10 billion people where you're trying to model all of their preferences and needs and wants and productive abilities and coordination and so forth. The problem is like, even if you know what they, what they all want and need right now, their preferences are all shifting over time. And so you, you, not, you, you not only need to understand the current state, you need to be able to flexibly adapt. And, and without a price system, you, you, you can't do that. And you can't have a price system if you, in a central planning environment, you have to have, you have, to have decentralization for that. So you, you have to have decentralized economics. And I, you know, I, obviously that, you know, that, that's what I believe, but that's, that's the strongest form of this. I guess the counter argument would be if you have enough, you know, if they're searching and, and doing social networking all day and you have enough data, maybe you can outsmart them uh, and, and know their preferences better than they do. Or if you just go full Wally and you just like plug everybody into a pod with a VR yeah. headset and, and, and a, and a feed of nutrition drink and maybe some heroin on tap, then you, you really reduce their the preference need. But anyway, all right. Well, so we'll finally back. try real communism. Real communism requires AI. And <laughs> we'll finally, tr- well, and or we'll try full, you know, real market economies. Well, because we'll have, we'll have distributed financial systems through yeah. blockchains that for the first time can actually be like an actual full decentralized economy. So one of the things, let's get into the economics a little bit, because it's, uh, I think one of the things that's really striking um, to me that you point out in the book is that when you have these network effects accrue to companies, they do things that are, you know, I think most people, you know, when you take a step back and look at it, are unbelievably exploitive in terms of take rates. So kind of a take rate in a competitive market versus a take rate in a kind of network effect concentration of power web two world just turn out to be very different. So maybe you could take us through that yeah. and, and how that works. Yeah. So take rates, just so folks know, is is in an internet service or a network, it's the percentage of revenue that goes to the operator of the network. So the in the case of these corporate networks, the corporate owner. So it's, think of it almost like a toll that's charged. And so, for example, credit cards charge something on the order of 2.5%, although a lot of that's given back in rewards to consumers. Apple charges 30% for the right to just simply distribute your app basically yeah, yeah. social networks outside of youtube take all the take all the money so they make about 150 billion last year in revenue and through advertising and other and other business models and they take you know the vast majority of that it's sort of opaque it's sort of hidden from users so they don't see it directly because they don't see the money flowing but but you see it in the results which is if you talk to a tiktok influencer or something they're always doing these kind of gymnastics to figure out how to make money you know they're selling stuff sponsorships or stuff in the offline world because they can't make it directly the way they would on the web or email where you have a direct relationship and that by the way web and email which are these open protocols there's no take rate there's no one in the middle and that's a very important kind of economic consequence so yeah, one thing I want to do in the book is, you know, you hear these words like decentralization. I, I try to re- almost avoid that that word in the book and a lot of tech jargon and really dig into the details. So, like, when we say decentralization, that can mean decentralization of software production. It can mean decentralization of economics. And so when I talk about uh, that's one sort of choice I made in the book was to really sort of say, like, let's get specific and, like, how does the money flow? And that's the, that's the idea with take rates. And so what it essentially means, though, the effect of it is a, in a blockchain, and then I have a whole argument in the book as to why blockchains basically the design of the blockchain constrains the take rate and that there's a bunch of reasons why including the fact that with the blockchain the designer of the network is forced to commit up front to the take rates and then can't change them and that creates a competitive dynamic where people can sort of shop around and empirically i have a few charts in the book like the take rates and for example ethereum is sub one percent and all the kind of common blockchain networks are very very low empirically as well 
And so, and, and, and so that's very important from a, you know, from like, if you build a social network, like we're investors in one called Farcaster, which is an emerging social network where, you know, it, it for the end user, it feels like a kind of a true, like a typical social network, like Twitter, but a very important difference is if you build an audience there and you want to, you know, put up advertising or sell them a subscription or do whatever you want, you get the money, you get all the money. Right. And that's just a dramatic shift that it's really like. $150 billion a year in current social networking revenue that you sort of like, I think of it like a train track, you can reroute it back to the users. In a lot of ways, the economic argument is like, I think a lot of people focus on things like shadow banning and like these sort of obvious effects of having a centralized operator like Elon Musk buying Twitter. Now, you know, the rules have changed around freedom of speech and who gets banned. But really, the economic effects in my mind are some of the most consequential. It's also what creates the opportunity, because I think, you know, a lot of historically, a lot of opportunities for new businesses on the internet have been ones where you take an existing high margin business, you know, your your margin is my opportunity, Jeff Bezos would say, in the same rate, like your your take rate is my opportunity, that you the fact that you can, this is also what makes me bullish on these networks succeeding is if you can go to these creative people and say, hey, do you want all the money instead of none of the money? Like that's a, that's a pretty, that's a pretty powerful proposition. And so, so I think there's a lot of pent up energy there for better models and people are just kind of used to this existing system. But when they see real alternatives, which I'm hoping that, that they'll see in the near future, they'll realize that, that that's a really compelling, because the other things like governance are subtler, right? Like, are you really going to switch your business over as a creator because they have better governance rules or it's, it's, it's subtler and more nuanced, whereas money is very straightforward, right? And it's like, you you just can have a much better business. Yeah, there, there's also a kind of freedom ownership aspect to it, which kind of is is very reminiscent of Web 1.0, where like in the early days of the internet, if I was building a business, you know, I put up a website, that's my website. It's not like any company's website. They can't take it from me. They can't set roles on me. They can't, you know, harangue me. And then it's all my money. Whereas, you know, now if I've got my social media account, I don't really own anything. In fact, like if I upload a photo to Instagram or whatever, I actually, they own that photo now. It's no longer mine. The handle, my name is not my name. My followers are not my followers. They're all owned by the corporation. How does that, like, so how does that change with something like Farcaster? How does it work in Web3 world? Yeah, I mean, the key idea in something like Farcaster is that just like with the original web, you own your identity. And that, that identity is typically, this is where a blockchain comes in, is you're, you, you own it on a blockchain. So think of it as something like an NFT, where it's a digital object that you own. And you also own your audience, you own your follower list. And so what that means in practice is if the software provider does something you don't like, like tries to remove you from the network, tweaks the algorithm to show less of you. As you see on Twitter now, people are complaining about you know, if you have a link in your tweet, you get demoted. If so, if any of those behavior or the take rate changes or whatever happens that, that you don't like, you can switch, right? That's the key thing. Just like with an email provider, like if you don't like what Substack is doing, you can take your email audience and you can leave and you can go to Ghost or some other sort of MailChimp or something. In the same way with something like Farcaster, you can, you can just change software providers. And so you can shop around. And that even if you don't shop around, the fact that you can shop around is what gives the user leverage in the same way that like if you have a if you host your website with Rackspace or AWS, they can only fuck with you so much. Right. They can raise the price. They can do this. But 
in the end, it's a pain to switch, but it's not the end of the world to switch because you have the domain name and you have the kind of property rights that you were assured on the original web, right? But we've kind of forgone those property rights now. And I think it's only, look, I mean, I, the other thing I would say is like, obviously social media has been around for 15, 20 years, but really only in a mainstream way in the last less than a decade. I mean, that it's gone mainstream. And I think only recently have these companies as part of my core argument is that the incentives of these network providers changes over time. When they start off, they, I call it the attract extract cycle. When they start off, they are trying to recruit people to, into the network, whether they're users or compliments like content providers. But over time, they start to squeeze you. And you see this, like look in your Google search today or Amazon searches today, Google search, most of your searches now are Google, Google properties. The results are Google properties or sponsored ads very, very different than it was 10 years ago. And this is happening more. And then the, on social media, what's happening is that people are, tr are basically, they've capped out their kind of organic growth for the most part. They're growing like 10% a year or something to get to, to get to juice further growth. They need to keep you on the, keep you on the app longer. And that's why they're demoting links and doing all these other kinds of things. So they're kind of turning. So I would argue also that we're relatively early in the social media revolution and that only now are a lot of these companies really turning the screws. And that I think creates greater opportunity for alternatives because people are starting to sort of see these effects that people like me have been talking about for a long time, but seem theoretical and now are becoming more kind of practical. Yeah. You know, we see, we've seen this kind of pattern before. I think it originally started probably with windows and PCs, but then, you know, kind of over time where if the platform provider has to get all the money in order to, to continue growing, then eventually nobody builds on the platform. So I think that, you know, kind of in the early days of social media, we imagined a world with all kinds of applications that could make use of your friends and your, you know, your associates or whatever, and all kinds of things you could build your business on. But kind of what's happened is you can only build something if it's very, very small, or you'll get basically shot in the head or outlawed or changed by the platform provider. So how, you, talk a little bit about how that works. Yeah. You guys saw this with me. Like we used to invest in things that were built on Facebook and Twitter. Would we ever do like when did, I, I would say around 2013, 12, 13, probably people like us, all the VCs stopped because of platform risk, right? This is not a theoretical thing. Like it just was very clear. The writing was on the wall. At one point, like Zynga was built on Facebook and IPO'd. And so there was a, there was a very broad mainstream school of tech thinking that it was okay to build on social pl social media platforms. And that just completely, I mean, would you guys ever fund somebody building whose entire business was, was based on one of these social media platforms? Nope. Like, I don't think <laughs> so, okay. I'll have, I'll recuse them. I'll, no, I'll, I'll answer that. But, uh, no, but I mean, and, and that, and that ended what, eight years ago or something. Yeah. I mean, this yeah. is something I think that, that the outside kind of mainstream world hasn't realized yet. Like this has real consequences, these, these platform decisions. I would actually argue, Ben, with respect to Microsoft, maybe this is a loaded topic with this group, but uh, I would actually argue they're in some ways benign relatively. Like Bill Gates always said that the, that the apps need to make more money than the OS. He said. Right? Like, <laughs> oh yeah, he did say. But compare it to, like, look what Apple's doing now. Like, no, you see this, that no one, none of the major apps would build in the, in, for Vision Pro because they're you know, the Spotify's of the world, because they'd been so screwed over. Like it, they're much harsher, 30%. And it's just people, uh, darn business or just don't realize like how onerous that is on a, on a business. Yeah. I mean, my, Microsoft's methods were different. You know, 
They're all saying Lotus one, two, three, or DOS ain't done till Lotus one, two, three won't run was their motto. And they would just keep putting bugs in the operating system that destroyed DOS or destroyed one, two, three. And by the way, they did the same thing to us at Netscape. So I think that, you know, if you go back to like the mid nineties, you could not get an application funded on a PC by a VC because, you know, they knew that Microsoft would just put you out of business. So it's a, it's a kind of common pattern where if the network effects accrue to the company, then the only way for the, or the way, the primary way the company likes to grow is by basically capturing everything that's involved in that network effect. And, you know, as a result, you kind of get these very stale ecosystems over time. And that's, yeah, I think that's what made Windows vulnerable to the internet. That's, you know, and hopefully that'll be what makes these monopolies uh, vulnerable to a kind of new, better decentralized system where ownership is distributed and not just in one company. Well, one of my, yeah. I don't know, is it, maybe I'm wrong, but this, I believe this is that there's, there's a lot of pent up developer energy yeah. and that sort of we've lived in a decade of very closed platforms yeah. and people have forgotten what it's like to be able to really build on a, on a, on top of an internet service. Yep. And, you know, we saw that the excitement level early Twitter was all these developers building things. And we saw that level of excitement. And I, I, my belief is that if you look at the 80 years of software history, like that's a long ongoing trend, most vividly embodied in open source software, Yep. but also with the early internet, you know, with that 2008 year of social media. And I believe it's sort of this pent up energy that yeah. it, with the right blockchain application, we can release that energy and there will be this huge wave of kind of developer excitement around it. I, I don't know. So I, I think there's sort of a dam that could that's about to break or could break with the right application. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think that, you know, like one of the things that we talk about and, and you know, because, you know, one, one of the things we, sh we should bring up, we can't ignore is we've had like these hype and crash cycles in crypto blockchain and they're kind of typical of technology, it's a little more visible in this case because there's this token value associated with, with the rise and fall that, that we haven't had in previous kind of hype crash cycles. But talk a little bit about, you know, like where are we in terms of the infrastructure build out, the performance of the blockchains, the cost of running on the blockchains, yeah. and how you think, you know... <laughs> Are we there yet in terms of, are we at that point where people are going to, you know, kind of build these new worlds and these amazing new applications or, or is it still a little early in the process? Yeah, I would say a couple of things there. So first of all, you know, the common, a common argument against crypto is it's been around 15 years and like, where are the, where are the big applications? I would say a couple of things first. You know, Bitcoin has been around that long, but Ethereum, which really generalized the ideas of Bitcoin and, and and built a blockchain as a general computing platform that was 2015. And then just sort of V1 Ethereum was had severe limitations. And specifically, it would cost, you know, $10 to do a simple transaction. So yeah. imagine if every time you click like on the social media thing, you have to pay $10, like it's not a viable platform. Yeah, um, <laughs> that, that's so, a different kind of take rate. Yeah. And so, and so like that kind of curve of like, how much does it cost to, to and how performant is a blockchain? And how, how secure, performant, and expensive is a blockchain is in some ways is sort of the Moore's law or the and AI would be the equivalent of like the number of parameters in your neural network. It's kind of this core infrastructure trend 
that I think is highly, I think those core infrastructure trends, I would argue in the history of tech are quite predictive. You know, you can, you could argue about all, I mean, I'm sure there were a lot of genius things done in the AI algorithm side, but you guys would know better. But I think a big part of the development was just the improvements in GPUs and the ability to run models. And there's some sense in which you could sort of have projected out, I think, from five to 10 years ago when we might hit those tipping points. And I think a similar thing exists in blockchains. And so I think the good, look, I think it's the timing is always hard to predict, but I like, for example, there's an Ethereum upgrade happening in three weeks, 4844, which is going to pro- like basically 100x the improvement of Ethereum L2s, which are the main way of scaling Ethereum today. And you get sort of sub penny transaction costs for most applications. So it feels like we're getting very close to something that's very usable for a lot. That, and that just really widens the aperture of possible applications. If you if it costs, you know, if you if you were to ask somebody if it costs five dollars to do a transaction, what applications are possible? Like the reality is, a lot of the applications that are pros- possible are things like trading and lending, and that's exactly what happened to work on Ethereum right. three years ago. Right. 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 But if it's still right, like, it's still cheaper to trade and lend. Yeah, with the transaction costs, right? If you're borrowing $1,000, $5 is fine, right? If you're trying to play a game or do something on social media, it's completely unacceptable, right? Right, right, right. So I sort of think of it as like each each decrease in cost and increase in performance, sort of it's like concentric circles get unlocked of different application categories, right? And then at the same time, we have, you know, like in our portfolio, you know, something on the order of many dozens of high-quality application companies and entrepreneurs building things on, you know, that take advantage of that infrastructure. So it's very hard to predict. I found historically exactly when it will all come together and you'll have the right infrastructure and the right applications, but it does feel like the pieces are in place. And so you mentioned the cycles. I mean, we've been through, if you just look at prices like Bitcoin price, there've been, since we've been involved 10 years, three kind of bull markets, you know, Bitcoin going up and then dropping. And, you know, potentially there's a, you know, maybe it's gone up lately. Maybe we're entering a new one. Uh, you know, my hope is that this, this, this time it's much more based around real applications that have utility that are non-speculative and not sort of just pure kind of excitement as, as it was somewhat in the past. Yeah, no, it's, it's very interesting because it, it is so reminiscent of the internet kind of boom and crash. So Mark and I used to get asked constantly about, you know, it was like, isn't the internet dead? Like, what are you doing? It's still on. There's so much now about that. Like, it drives me crazy. Like, people are like, the internet was inevitable. I mean, you guys know, you guys know better than me, but I did start my career during the downturn, and like, it was far from inevitable and far from obvious. I mean, it was like it was a thing. People used it, but it was this thing that sat on your desktop, and for a day, you'd go get your travel tickets or something like it wasn't, you know, it was nothing like today. Well, yeah. And, and it was very kind of, it was the exact same situation. I mean, you know, and, and you know, the Paul Krugman, the Nobel prize winning economist, you know, kind of famously said that it's never going to be more important than the fax machine and all that kind of thing. Um, but he wasn't the only one at all. And the reason was the economics didn't work the way people imagined they would one day in that, you know, if you go back to, 96, I think we had 90% browser share mark and we had 50 million users. So there was like 55 million people on the internet. So that's the first thing. The market wasn't that big. And then the second thing was, you know, half of those were on dial-up. So there was limited kinds of applications you could run. And then the other thing was 
like building a website was really complex. The, the software infrastructure, the tools were really, really primitive and, you know, not really designed for anything but serving a page. And so the amount, you know, the number of engineers you'd have to feel to get like a mediocre working application deployed to 55 million people was just like, it didn't work. The math didn't work on the economics for most things. It worked for a few things like eBay and Amazon and so forth, but it certainly wouldn't have worked for, you know, Facebook or Twitter or these kinds of things. And so, you know, at that point, you know, if you just mark that point in time, you'd go, oh, where are the killer apps? Like this stuff is all BS. Like nobody's making any money. They're selling dollars for 95 cents. Like all that stuff came out, which is kind of exactly what's going on in crypto where it's not that like the technological path isn't correct and obvious and inevitable. It's that like we're just at a point in time where there's whole classes of applications that don't make economic sense right now. And, and that seems to be changing fairly rapidly. Well, and what they, and like, yeah. so like in the, my book, I cite, there was a Pew study, I think it was 2003, that asked Americans if they want broadband, mm-hmm. and the majority said no. Yeah. And of course, you know, what was going on there is that yeah. when people thought broadband, when they thought the internet, they thought email and yeah. a few other applications. Yeah. And what they ignored, I mean, I'm not blaming the consumers, I'm blaming the pundits here, but like <laughs> yeah. what, they, what they ignored was that it's an interactive feedback loop between applications and platforms, right? So as broadband grew, people created YouTube and video sites and that created new applications, right? And these things, like to understand these processes, like the growth of the internet, and just, I would argue, this is what's special about software. People map hardware onto it when they don't, software has this much more malleable nature where you can have these interactive feedback loops and crypto like the internet is a software-based medium. And so you, you, what you're saying, I think, is if you just draw a line through the current applications, you get one result. If you then imagine people are really creative and they'll be creating new applications and the platforms are getting better and those two will feed back into each other, you end up with a very different kind of development curve. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it, and, and look, you know, it, it just takes time. Um, that's the other thing. And, and what happens is investors always get ahead of the, which is kind of a good thing, but it's a bad thing. So they, they get, they get all wrapped up in the hype. They're like, oh my God, this is going to change the world. It's going to do everything. You know, the take rates are going to go down. People are going to build these massive worlds, da, 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 which is all true, but they're not going to get a return tomorrow. You know, the, the, the money's not going to come out the other end of the machine in like, you know, a quarter which is a lot what investors are used to. And so then they get massively depressed and they sell everything and it's, and the press writes all these super negative stories. Well, the, and like yeah. the internet bubble, it was, yeah. I mean, it was actually a bubble because in the end it was correct. It just took a long time. <laughs> right, to right, right. Like, I mean, and so it, it, in some ways it's just the market got ahead of it. But in some, a lot of, a lot of those sort of breathless magazine articles in the nineties, which yeah. people laughed at were actually accurate. They just were yeah. ahead of their time. Yeah. Well, and, and every crypto kind of bubble has kind of been exceeded by the kind of next wave of applications and things that people can build, you know, in terms of the pricing. So it does seem like it's following like a really well-known, well-worn pattern. But of course, and even more so with crypto, I think, than with the internet, the press only, like there's only ever a news story if the price of Bitcoin and Ethereum are going down. <laughs> like when they go up, like it's not in the news at all. But when they're going down, there's, there's like a, a thousand stories. Yeah. There's a website, Bitcoin Obituaries. It's like yeah. the 400, and 400 times that 
it's Bitcoin's been declared dead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, it's very interesting. I mean, which is an amazing, I, I always see, you know, when we talk to our investors and they ask, well, like, you know, you know, is crypto just a fad? I'm like, well, you know, like Bitcoin started in 2008 and it's, you know, a piece of software and there's probably four engineers working on it at this point and there's no company and it's worth a trillion dollars. That's a hell of a magic trick, you know, <laughs> like if that's not a real thing, then then what is a real thing, you know, at this point? Yeah, I would think at some point you would imagine that the people that have said Bitcoin's dead, I'll just yeah. stick to Bitcoin for 15 years, would say, okay, I've been wrong for 15 years. Yeah. Maybe it's time to reevaluate my theory that it's just Beanie Babies. and. Yeah. But I guess, but I haven't seen that self-reflection. But the <laughs> my my argument would be that that you know that the core that the core idea of Bitcoin, this idea that you have a financial service that the community owns, is just an incredibly powerful idea that has really appealed to people. And then, of course, has been expanded to other platforms like Ethereum, channeling that excitement into specific useful applications is sort of the is the next challenge. But the kind of genuine deep excitement for community owned internet services, I think is demonstrated through the, just the, the sheer resilience of services like Bitcoin. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, it's really kind of important societally. And I think that you have a great metaphor in the book as you kind of get into, you know, things like, okay, how is VR going to work and so forth. And you talk about, well, we can have Disneyland, which is fantastic by the way, or we can have cities <laughs> and maybe talk a little bit about that and, you know, kind of why, like what's good about cities versus Disneyland and, and, you know, what's a world where like a corporation owns, you know, everywhere you live and everything you do and every restaurant, and every, everything. I mean, this goes back to what Mark was talking about earlier. I mean, I just, look, I, I believe there's lots of evidence for, and I deeply believe that most innovation comes from the edges right comes from individuals creative people entrepreneurs and that no matter how much you for example try to centrally plan let's say a city you'll never do as good of a job as you know a million people all being creative right and, and like i think we have this I, the reason i like the city metaphor is i think people see this viscerally in the real world right i think almost everybody would agree that new york city is a more interesting dynamic place than some you know planned city or theme park and that it works quite well and, and it, how does it work? It works through a series of incentives. It also works, I think, through a balance of public and private spaces. So, you know, a, a city block is like you have the sidewalk and the street, which play, you know, an important role for enabling entrepreneurship. Like, you know, you can open a pizza shop. And if that were a toll road owned by another company, you'd be afraid of, of you know, of take rates and hold up. But because you know it's open, you know you can build a business. At the same time, you know we, I don't think we want all the pizza shops to be government owned because the, there's a lot of value in having the creative creativity of entrepreneurship. So I, I like cities. I mean, I like cities personally, and I I live you know I, I live in cities, and I I think they're exciting, and I just find energy out of them, and I think a lot of people other people do. But to me, that's sort of also how I thought of the early internet: is you had these public resources like the the web protocol and the email protocol acted almost like city streets and then you had all of this creativity at the edges and that for me that just made it fun and exciting and enabled entrepreneurship and innovation at the edges so that that's part of what my kind of core argument and belief is and why this is an important topic is it's not just about sort of you know fighting over how a technology is built right it's fundamentally like do we have an internet that creates incentives 
for innovation at the edges, for entrepreneurs, for creative people. It's very, I think of it as very analogous to the arguments for open source software, mm -hmm. which I'm also obviously a proponent of, and yeah. you guys are in the sense that open source software just allows for all of this other, like, I hope that we have open source AI systems that are competitive with the closed one so that entrepreneurs can build around that. Right. It's, a, I mean, think about how, I think the world just really underestimates how valuable things like Linux are and all, and all of that open source software that, that is the reason why a, a, a team with a million dollars can go build a awesome SaaS platform or something. Right. And I think we could have the same thing. I sort of think one way to think about blockchain is they're doing for, the service layer, what open source software did for the software layer for like for software running live in production, you know, you can now have services that are open and committed to staying open and therefore provide incentives for people to build on top in a way that you couldn't in the older model. Yeah, that's a really great point because, you know, open source software is kind of, it, it broke the network effect that concentrated all of the powers in software and software applications into a single company with an operating system network effect. And that kind of opened up the world for so many companies and, you know, businesses have been gotten so much more efficient and so forth. And none of that could have happened uh, without kind of open source unlocking it and saying, look, you don't have to rewrite an operating system and then you don't have to contribute most of your money into somebody else's network effect who's going to eventually come kill you. You know, that, that's such a profound change. But I, but I would argue that, so like, but then what happened, right, is the co the corporate, the companies responded by saying, we're going to move up the stack. We're going to move up to the stack to the service layer. We're going to monopolize services, yeah. data. Right, right. Um, and and I would argue, like, this is one of the things I, I wish I could convince the open source folks of. If you like open source, you should really like blockchains as well, because it's essentially open source's response to that move up to the service layer. Right. Right. So as these companies move to the service layer to make that the new choke point, we now have a way to build open services that are committed to staying open that can compete with them. And that should be yeah. an extension, I believe, is an extension of the open source mission, not a, not a different mission. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, and a really kind of amazing distribution of, of power, kind of getting back to the original kind of communist versus libertarian technology argument. You know, they, they, these network effects concentrate power so severely. And is it concentrate power? And it's kind of, you know, is it concentrating the power with the stakeholders, the entire community, all the users, or is it concentrating power with a single corporation? And then that's really the, the, the key delineation. I mean, I don't see, I mean, I'd love, maybe you guys have a different view. I, I just have trouble seeing outside of blockchains right now how we don't end up with sort of, you know, a little bit of a Wally world with like five companies controlling the internet. I mean, that's certainly where we're headed right now. <laughs> well, it's where we are. <laughs> Forget headed. We are. I mean, we are. And I think, yeah. And so, I don't know. Like, I just, I wish, you know, I mean, I, I think in theory, there's a regulatory <laughs> solution. I think in practice, it's 10 years, to, you know, well, you could debate it, but like blocking Figma or Activision is a sideshow. Well, know, the regulatory the regulatory apparatus in both the U.S. and in Europe seems to actually want that, right? To want the concentration. I mean, they certainly are. That seems to be their their <laughs> their they're behaving as if they do, even though they don't say that. But sure. Well, it sets it up to for the government to seize the means of production, right? Like it's, <laughs> which is kind of what they're doing in pieces. So it's like, okay, we're we're not going to get all the money from Google, but we're going to control what Google publishes and says. 
um, and, and that basically transfers tremendous power to the government and away from the people. So let's, if I could, I don't want to yeah. cut you guys off, but there was, there was a relevant question from, from Twitter, from, from X, there was a relevant sheet on this, which is basically central bank currency, digital currency. So, you know, there, there are various governments that have already have projects underway to do so-called central bank digital currencies, sort of national sovereign, you know, kind of centrally managed, you know, not non-blockchain, central managed digital currencies in, in competition with systems like Bitcoin and, and Ethereum and, and, and other uh, uh, crypto web three things. And then, of course, you know, lots of speculation in the U.S. and statements from government officials and politicians over the years that that would be a good idea here as well. Yeah, Chris, like how, how would you compare and contrast everything you talk about in the book with the idea of a central bank digital currency? And then what's your what's your take on the whole thing? Yeah, I think there's a couple dimensions to the, to the central bank digital currency. Like there's one idea, which is having a digital dollar. Right. And I would argue we have a digital dollar today and that's stable coins like USDC on platforms like Ethereum. And that this, the, my argument would be the smart way. There's a, there's a bill, a stable coin bill that's pending in Congress that, you know, that you do need some regulatory guardrails around that and that bill would provide it, but don't go and try to reinvent what the technology community has built already. Then, so that's, so that's, you know, the, now the, the strong form of the, of the central bank digital currency is an actual government created d digital dollar payment system that's tightly controlled. And I think that there are people that worry that, you know, sort of the trucker thing in Canada, that you're essentially going to have that as a way of, you know, government to do government assigned credit score, government controlled payments. It becomes a new lever in the sort of the, the operation choke point stuff where people are getting debanked, right? And you're going to have just endless. And I think it's, I don't know, my own view, I'm not a political expert, but like, I think it's very likely the next debate, we kind of debate the way that speech has been debated the last five years. I think money is very likely to be debated in the next five years. And CDBC in one formulation of it is kind of the, the main embodiment of, that'll be the main embodiment of that debate, right? Yeah, let's let's dig into that for for a bit because I'll just give you my view and see what you think. Which is my view is that the thing with the and you guys have talked about this from a bunch of different angles already. But one of the things that just is really changed, like the underlying thing that's really changed, is that like computers and software used to be like you buy it, you use it, you do what you want, you install whatever, you write whatever software you want, you install whatever software you want, you write whatever you want with your word processing software, you print whatever you want on your printer. And then we kind of imported that that ethos into the inter internet kind of web 1.0, which is, you know, you send whatever email you want, you do whatever VoIP call you want, you put out whatever website you want. And, you know, if you're doing something like blatantly illegal, and if you're like sending somebody like terrorist, you know, threats over email, you get arrested based on existing like anti-terror laws. But there was no idea of like content filtering on email, or there was no idea of like cutting off your accounts, you know, getting, getting you know, getting banned. Nobody ever got banned from email, right? Sure. Or from TCPIP, for that matter. And in, fact, and in fact, there was this whole movement, right, which was the net neutrality movement, right, which was which mm -hmm. was this, you know, basically people who were like, they, they very much did not want corporations in a position to ever be able to kick anybody uh, off the internet, and certainly not on the basis of speech. And then there was just this thing that happened, and it started about a decade ago, a little bit longer. And, and, and I describe, the metaphor I use is the, you know, the ring of power, you know, the sort of Lord of the Rings thing, which is, you know, the thing with the ring of power in the Lord of the Rings universe is, it's just simply irresistible, right? Like the, the ring of power is irresistible. Nobody can resist it. Everybody's subject to it. If you think you can resist it, you're wrong. And you're, you're going to use it. It's too powerful, right? You're going to use it. And so the ring of power is centralized internet service control or centralized banking system control. It's just, you know, if, if, if you can monitor other people's communications, you will. If you can filter and censor their communications, you will. 
If you can monitor people's financial transactions, you will. If you can debank people for who you don't like, you will. And so it's, it's all of these, these sort of central choke point systems that in, a, in a sort of an era where they're all live and online and can be like, you know, basically used, you can, you can search them and you can scan them and you can tag people and track people and so forth. And then you, you can cut people off from things like they're just going to get used. And if your political allies are in power, you probably think that's a good thing because your enemies are getting punished because they're getting their bank accounts canceled and they're you know getting kicked off the Internet. If, you know, you're on the other side of whoever's in power or there's a, a regime shift, then obviously that's very bad for you. Or even if it's not political, even if it's just something that's socially out of fashion, you know, I'll just give you an example. Like, you know, r- right now, the sort of overall momentum in the U.S. is they want to ban nicotine and, and, and promote marijuana. Right. And so, you know, if you're like if you're if you're if you're doing like marijuana vapes, like they they they're all in favor. And if you're doing like tobacco vapes, they want to kill you. And they'll like they'll like use the banking system and they'll use the uh, Internet censorship controls and so forth to promote and ban by the way, that can flip tomorrow, right? 10 years ago, that was the opposite. It could be the opposite again in 10 years, and then the ring of power will get used the other direction. So anyway, point being is that a central bank digital currency, I think, is kind of the ultimate ring of power. Like, it, it, it's very difficult for me to see a system like that getting built and then uh, politicians not using it to reward their friends and punish their enemies. You guys think that, is it, am I being too dystopian, or does that, does that match what you, what you guys have seen and think? Well, I think it's actually already kind of happening um, at certain levels. I mean, we've seen companies debanked um, for, you will, choke point 1.0, uh, the famous. Ben, you might just describe for people yeah. who don't know what that was. What was that? Yeah. So basically, um, as states started legalizing, and particularly marijuana, the U.S. government, you know, the federal government couldn't kind of or didn't want to, or didn't want to kind of challenge that activity through like some kind of heavy handed law enforcement and so forth. And, you know, although it was in conflict with the federal law, so they did this kind of thing that was kind of extra legal administrative state crackdown where they went to the banks and said, well, like if you bank a marijuana company and you let them have a bank account, then, you know, we're going to punish you. We won't let you borrow at the Fed window. If you get in trouble, we won't bail you out, all that kind of thing, which if you're a bank, you can't tolerate that kind of risk. And so it was kind of this weird, you know, like the people didn't vote for it. There was no legislation. It was underground. It was like this extreme use of power in a very kind of nefarious way. And by the way, we're seeing, you know, this administration do the same thing in something called choke point 2.0, but this time with crypto companies. And, you know, there's no law that they're following. There's no rule. There's no legislation. There's no vote. There's no nothing. It's just the government exercising power over the private sector via private corporations. And it's, you know, and it's quite scary. And this is, you know, for those of you who are students of history, know this is exactly how fascism worked. This is how Nazi Germany work, they use private corporations to kind of confiscate people's stuff and, you know, do these kinds of techniques to them. And the fact that we're seeing it like right now in 2024 from the current administration, you know, do you really want to amp up that power and say, well, forget just banks, but any use of money is now subject to this kind of, you know, ring of power to to your point. I've been just continually surprised. I thought that I don't know. I guess growing up, I thought that we understood there was a trade-off that on the one hand, there would be stuff we don't like. And there's certainly stuff I don't like that's said and yeah. <laughs> spoken and shared on social media. 
But I thought we understood there was a trade. I mean, ob- and obviously you ban illegal stuff, as you said. And that was, by the way, it's banned on the web. It's banned on email. Like it's having law and order is completely consistent with decentralized networks. Um, but I thought we understood that, that you know, that sort of handing the power to control speech and money and things like that to the government was a bad trade. <laughs> that even though maybe short term it, it seemed appealing, it was a bad idea long term. And I, I've been surprised, and I think as we all have probably in the last 10 years, because I just thought it was obvious, like a word processor shouldn't be the thing censoring you, right? I mean, you obviously should have some layer of blocking bad stuff, but it doesn't happen at the tool level. And and I think I thought we understood that as a society, and I guess we don't. And now we're replaying that with now like the AI stuff yesterday with Google and like, I, I don't even know what's going to happen with these AI systems. You guys are closer to it than me. It just seems like they're they're, I, I don't even see how they're useful to people if they just if they lie to you. Like it just really undermines their value as a tool. But I guess if we have five companies and we have no choice, that's what we'll use. Well, we learned something very valuable we, over the last few days with the new Google image generator, which is we learned out that the Nazis were actually quite diverse. <laughs> it turns out there were lots of black and brown Nazis in stormtrooper uniforms mm-hmm. in, in the streets of in the streets of Berlin and Paris in the, in the 1930s and 40s. I, I actually didn't know that. So uh, the whole master I, race thing and the Aryan thing, that, that's all BS. Okay. No, no, no. Hitler was very inclusive. He was, he was happy to have he was happy to have SS officers of any of any race and ethnicity. In fact, in fact, if anything, it looks like he was biased against white people. Okay. By the way, that actually made I can't even comment on that without getting myself into trouble. But yes, no, that's how the New York Times actually wrote up the story today. That was the problem that they zeroed in on. Which you know, uh, in, in this case, more credit to them. So we know what we don't want the kind of government to do, but what do we want the government to do and why? And talk, Chris, a little bit about, okay, like why in this, with this technology, is there this huge, like speculative casino aspect and, and how, why do we have to regulate that in order to protect the kind of the, the creative important uses that we've been discussing so far? Yeah. So that, so, so, Crypto intersects with policy in a number of layers, and there's, there's so for example, there's discussions around what are called self-hosted wallets, which is the ability to custody your money yourself. And this goes to the question that we were just discussing around central bank digital currency, because it's sort of you know that would give a lot of power to users away from centralized actors. The specific kind of issue that's been the flashpoint recently is securities law. So securities law is a you know set of laws from the from the in the U.S. from the 1930s, that are essentially about protecting protecting market participants from actors that have asymmetric information. So specifically, you think about Apple stock, and there are people, including the management of Apple, who have information that is relevant to the price of the stock. And therefore, there's all these rules around how they disclose that information and how they can trade and things like that. So, so it's, it's intended to create a level playing field. And, and, and importantly, those, law, those rules don't apply to commodities. So for example, gold is considered a commodity. Kind of the legal theory is that that yes, there are people that are experts in gold and study the you know supply and demand of gold and things like that, but but it, the information is decentralized enough that there is not a sort of a sharp asymmetry of information and therefore it's regulated differently. And th- there's generally agreement that things like Bitcoin are commodities because it's decentralized enough. Ethereum looks like it's in that status as well. When you first create a project, it's by definition centralized because it's a person with an idea, as as was Bitcoin, as was every invention in the history of humanity, right? Yeah. It starts off with a person or people with an idea. 
And so there's a, there's a pathway. At some point, you start off centralized, but you can eventually be decentralized. And how do you get there? And what are the, what are the milestones you need to hit? And, and so that, that has been, it's, because it's a new technology, it's very different than, than the world in which these laws were designed in the 1930s. There's been ambiguity in that. And that ambiguity, we've argued for a long time, for many years, has had the effect of encouraging bad actors because bad actors like ambiguity because they otherwise would be stealing money and hacking and doing whatever. And so having some risk of a lawsuit is actually appealing to them versus their other career options. And meanwhile, good actors, if you're a top end student out of Stanford, do you want to go into an area with gray, with legal gray area where you just stick to AI or something, right? And so what we've seen for a long time is that that ambiguity has created a disincentive for good entrepreneurs and incentive for bad actors. And I think has in many ways contributed to a lot of the things that happened, like for example, with FTX and other scandals and things, because it just sort of drew in the wrong people. And so we saw this dynamic happening, I don't know, five years ago or something and have been calling, you know, trying to advocate for policies and clear rules. Obviously we want a pathway to allow innovation, but really a lot of it's just about having that clarity because entrepreneurs want that predictability right? They don't want to. They're fine spending money and jumping through hoops. They just need to know what the hoops are. And that's, and so instead, what, what's happening, because there has not been any legislation or, or rulemaking from the enforcement bodies, instead, it's all be happening through courts. And so there are lawsuits happening, and that's going to take many years to play out. It'll be appealed. And then there'll be, and by the way, this is, I think, happening in AI right now. We'll see what happens. Similar thing with like New York Times open AI lawsuit. You know, you're going to have potentially copyright important decisions that have effects on huge economic effects decided by judges three to five years from now who are interpreting, you know, hundred plus year old rules as opposed to society coming together as a democracy and jointly deciding on what the best outcome is, which I, you know, we think is a better way to do it, right? We should, we think, I think the, my argument is the best way to think about policy, whether it's AI or crypto is look at the technology expansively, look at the pros, look at the cons, and then through a democratic process, ideally, you know, and this is very idealized because it's not the politics of today, but like have a intelligent discussion, discuss the pros and the cons, and then come up with a policy solution that maximizes the pros and minimizes the cons. That would be the the I think in my view the smart way to approach new technologies from a policy perspective. Yeah. Yeah, no. Absolutely. Okay, Mark. What does the internet have to say? Great. Ghost of Twin Peaks, a great show uh, in both incarnations says, "How will crypto benefit the American national interest?" I think I look at my my argument would be the core. I mean, America is very good at entrepreneurship and innovation, and we want to see. And I think, by the way, this benefits VCs' interest. When I get asked, "Is this in your interest?" Like, am I doing this? Am I arguing for a dynamic, entrepreneurial, rich internet out of self-interest? To some extent, I am. I work in the in the venture capital business, as you guys do. Like, we depend on there being a very dynamic economy, and so. I think having the build the kind of the technological building blocks and, and I would, the two big buckets I would do say would be blockchains and open source software are critical for preserving, you know, high level of dynamism, entrepreneurship. I think you, Mark, talk about this, like the U.S. economy should not be thought of as a static lump of jobs. I think it's every year what 8 million jobs are destroyed or something. And then ideally, you know, more than 8 million are created. It's right. a constant churn and we need to make sure that keeps happening. And so I, I think, yeah, so the policy should be things that encourage entrepreneurship, creativity, innovation at the edges, not 
five big companies that control everything. Yeah, I would, I would add to that, Mark, that, you know, if you think about America and why it's important in the world, you know, we often refer to ourselves as the, you know, a superpower, the superpower, and that, that superpower is derived really from, you know, a few areas. One is military power, which I, I think is kind of declining for us and that, you know, the, there's disputes spread out all over the world, I think, as a relative, you know, superior strength as the technology of warfare is changing. Our lead is not what it once was. The second is the dollar itself. And we've seen we've tried to use that in lieu of military power in the Russia-Ukraine conflict, and it, it's been very ineffective. I mean, then the third is the internet, where we're exporting our values, our culture, and making the rules of the internet. And that was enabled because the internet largely got built in the United States and, you know, the government didn't undermine it. In fact, it um, promoted it. And that, that, that remains a huge source of power for the country and for the ideas that come out of the country currently and the kind of the American way of life, so, so to speak. And, you know, if we forfeit the next evolution of the internet, to whomever, and there are many countries, by the way, who are who have been much, much better on crypto regulation to date, you know, as a, as a way to kind of preserve this ring of power, which has been what's been going on, you know, it's it's one of the most destructive things we can do to the country. So so it's, a, you know, and then and a huge reason, you know, other than like, I agree with Chris, it's in our interest because we, you know, like it's a good investment for us if it goes well. But like, you know, for the country, it's probably, you know, the most important thing that we're doing as a firm. Good. And then a related question from D. Do you see adoption of crypto occurring, you know, I would say, and we might say like past, present and future here in regions with fewer regulations or less regulatory capture before the United States? It's a good question. I think, I mean, like we're seeing, I think there's different dimensions to that. Like, so for example, in usage, there's a lot of data that shows, for example, stablecoin adoption is much higher in countries with with volatile currency. So, like Argentina, something like last number I saw was eighteen percent of Argentinians have own a stablecoin. In America, fifty million people have crypto and mostly Bitcoin. So, pretty you know, pretty big number. I think there's a separate question where the projects will be based. So, pretty a lot of projects now are blocking the U.S. because of the regulatory situation here which says something, the fact that the U.S. is the only country you block is kind of, a, I think, a sad statement. And so, yeah, where those companies or those projects are based, where where they allow users will be a question. I think a lot of will come down to regulatory questions. And like, look, we're working, we opened an office in the U.K. because they seem to be taking a, a forward-looking approach there towards regulation here. My view is, I like, maybe I'm overly optimistic. I think that eventually all of the major countries will coalesce on a reasonable policy here, I hope. I just think it will be a question of how long it takes and sort of our pitch to various jurisdictions like the UK has been, there's an opportunity to get ahead of that. As you guys know, people have come to us forever saying they want to create a new Silicon Valley and, and our, you know, and they, they say things like, we'll provide free office space, we'll provide funding, right? Yeah. Like, these are not what people need or want. What they want is regulatory clarity. Like that is the way, like getting, I believe, getting ahead on regulation, whether it's, again, AI, crypto, whatever the emerging area might be, is the best way for a country that you, you need other things. You need good universities and sort of the entrepreneurship and things like that. But 
that that is the smartest way to get ahead of and create a new Silicon Valley. And I think we're seeing some like Asia, some Japan just did some positive things. UK is doing some positive things. Even EU, I would argue, is better than the US right now. It's not perfect, but like the Mika, which is the new crypto regulatory framework they have, is actually better than the US. So I think it does create an opportunity. So we'll see how it plays out. Like we're working, like we're not, we're here in the US. We're working very hard to work with the policymakers here and would like to see it happen here. Yeah. And actually, to give you a concrete example of that, Mark, of, of kind of companies not being able to function in the US, you know, we have an investment in a company called WorldCoin, which is like a very kind of topical, relevant, technology because it's proof of human. They can do a zero-knowledge proof that proves you're a human being and not an AI bot. But the one country that they cannot list on an exchange in is the United States. They only list in foreign exchanges. And, and, the, and they're blocking the, they're not going to launch the product in the U.S. either. So, no. yeah. And then let's, you know, actually building on that point. So uh, there were a bunch of questions around AI and you guys touched on this a little bit already, but let, maybe let's dig into the next level of detail because it's a very, very, people are very interested in this. So two questions. So Crux asks, what is the current relationship between AI and Web3, cryptocurrencies, blockchain? Where do you see it going in the next decade? And then Bob Shu asks, what are some practical use cases you think AI and Web3 uh, technology together can solve? Yeah, I think there's a bunch of interesting things. I think one... Maybe I'll start with the simplest, which is proving that something came from an actual human, as Ben just alluded to, proving that a sort of the provenance of a video or piece of media, a very natural way to do that, to me, to me, the only correct way to do to, to sort of say this, this, this video is attested to be true by Mark Andreessen, or this video is attested to be true by the New York Times, the natural place to store that attestation is on a blockchain. A blockchain is a community owned database, a public resource, um, and is made to have sort of an, you know, as a key feature has an immutable audit trail. Um, so all of that kind of fits very, and then similarly with people like having, I, I think in some ways the internet, you, you guys, when you built the internet, you forgot to build a identity system, right? <laughs> um, like <laughs> we tried, we tried, it was very hard to distribute <laughs> private keys. <laughs> now you had a lot on your plate, but that would have been nice. And so instead we have these ridiculous, you know, how many traffic lights are in this CAPTCHA and, and essentially what we do today is Turing tests, right? Like, does that email look real? And everyone's supposed to do their own Turing test on every email they receive to see if it's real, which is not going to be sustainable. There probably isn't today, right? I mean, these, these LLMs are good enough to fake all of that voices, everything, right? So that whole system is about to break down. And how, what are we going to replace it with? Right. And so, so to me, that's an obvious area of just sort of, I would call it kind of direct counterbalancing features for a new world where you have infinite content in people. The next layer is things like incentives, like blockchains are very good at designing incentive systems. What's the incentive system in the future for some artist to put their art online, knowing it will get become training data? don't we want to create a positive incentive system for that? Like, so that there's a, there's like what you're seeing now, like Reddit just shut down their, their API, Twitter's doing that. You have more and more artists taking content offline because they're just, they see it as just fodder for training data. And I'm not getting into who's right and wrong or anything like that. Just more like, just think of it just purely from like first principles. You want to design an incentive system that encourages creativity, that encourages participation and blockchains are they're incentive machines, right? You can go and using a blockchain design a, a network that has incentives and gives out tokens and does other things based on what the incentives you want are. Another layer to that question would be the AI systems themselves. So for example, we have an investment in a company called Jensen, 
which is building a decentralized GPU training network. So instead of having to go buy, you know, Facebook just bought, I think it was 10,000 H100s, $10 billion in CapEx. Like what if instead kind of Airbnb style, you harness all the latent GPU power in the world by creating a network where people have incentives to provide GPU supply and someone else can access them on demand. You could do a similar idea around data. So, you know, I want to contribute data to a network and I get paid in some way. So I think there's just like, so there's just I, another area I would say is like in a world where content is infinite, you know, are there new business models for creative people? One idea I think is really fun that we've invested in is called, I call it collaborative storytelling. And the idea is a group of people get together kind of Wikipedia style, but instead of creating an encyclopedia, they create narrative universes, sort of like the next Marvel and Harry Potter. And those can have tokens involved where they get kind of rewarded based on their participation and they could create AI generated movies and content and then, and then go out and evangelize that content and get, and make money according to how popular it is. So you can kind of harness all that fan energy in a new business model. And I would argue that AI will accelerate the need for the new business model, right? Cause it's going to nuke it, the, the model of selling content is going to go to zero. I assume, right. The, the value will shift to selling community and attention and, you know, participation and, all these other kinds of things that become more relevant in a world where con- we're washing content. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that's a great kind of comprehensive description. And, but I would just, the one thing I would add is that like, it's, there's not really another answer on the horizon to any of these really significant AI problems, you know, like, I mean, the other answer is, the AI companies will continue to do what they do, which is take all your content without asking, deny that they did, close source everything, and you know, and then buy whatever $100 billion worth of GPUs and train a giant model that you can't compete with and generate a network effect. So I think that you know, an AI world without kind of blockchain solutions is a, is a potentially dystopian place. Well, I was going to say, like, one reason I wrote the book and I wish and sort of like I'm not claiming I have all the answers, but I just wish we were having a discussion at a higher level. Like, for example, with the like artists and AI, like today to me, the discussion is like this very binary thing of like, we'll either do it offshore in a content farm or we'll, you know, go to core. Like, but like, what's the right answer? Like what? Like, let's think through the second order effects of these new technologies and like what what is the society we want? What are the incentives we want? You know, how do we do we want human creativity to still flourish? Maybe the answer is no or yes. But like, let's have that discussion is what I'm kind of hoping to do by writing this book and talking about this topic. And I I would argue then blockchains are very important, as you just said, Ben, like probably the only plausible answer. But I don't even see people having this discussion. Maybe I'm missing it. But I don't I for the most part, I just sort of see people having this legal discussion of like, it's is it is it copyright violation or not? As opposed to, to me, the more interesting and important question is, what kind of internet do we want? You know, and let's, how do we design that internet? And how do we take a proactive view and not just reactive? Like, let's just sue each other. Like, let's, like, don't we want to, like, think bigger than that? And, like, don't we want to take control of the future in, in a way, in, in, a, in a way than as opposed to just reacting to it? Yeah, you know, it's funny. It's kind of like the, the thing that Elon's been saying, which is, like, there are the acting like you're a good person and actually being a good person. And it seems like in AI world, everybody's acting like they're a good person. I'm Oppenheimer. I'm an effective altruist. I, I, I blah, blah, blah. And then everything I do is against everything I'm saying. And I'm not really trying to solve the problem. I'm just, you know, 
continuing doing what I'm doing. And then I'm saying a bunch of stuff to try and put a cloak of decency over my head. I mean, like to me, the canary in the coal mine was Stack Overflow, which my understanding, you know, I, we used to obviously, we used to be investors before they got acquired. And my understanding is that's one of the key things that went into the training algorithms for the code generation. And now the traffic is down 40% or whatever, because you don't need it. Which, you know, by the way, Stack Overflow always had an open source view of their data. And, you know, that was, they understood that. And so not specific, but I just wonder, like, is that the canary in the coal mine? And if that happens with every piece of content on the internet, like that goes into training data, like, is that, and look, maybe that's the outcome we want. Maybe we want five websites and you just go in the Philippines and have them, you know, like a new programming language comes along and you just have a company in the Philippines add some new training data. But that, that, that's where we're headed right now. And I don't feel like people are talking about it. I don't think that's the world we want. I think we want a world with incentives. So like people have incentives to create new new things to go into these systems and participate in the internet. I, I just don't see that even people even discuss it. I feel like I'm this crazy person on the street corner talking about these issues. And I don't know. At least there's three, three of us on the street corner. Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 the night, the, the, the hour is getting late and the lights are, the overhead lights are flickering. So Zach, Zach Pandel asks, what is your perspective on Bitcoin specifically at this point in its history? Is it a finished product or could it evolve into something different with lightning and or rollups? What is Bitcoin's TAM, total addressable market? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, so Bitcoin, there's Bitcoin, the technology and there's Bitcoin, the you know, the actual culture and everything that exists around today, there was a, you know, for those who know, there was a giant civil war in the Bitcoin community five or whatever, five years ago, seven years ago, um, around the block size debate, it was called, which was in some ways a proxy war for should Bitcoin be a store of value or a payment system. Um, and the store of value people won. Um, and I, I think that sort of look store of value means like it's a good place to store your money. You anticipate the price is going to go up. If you think the price is going to go up, why would you want to spend it on a pizza or something and be the guy that spent, you know, be, be the be the guy that spent money on a pizza when you could have saved it? And so there's a natural tension between being used as a payment system, for example, and being a store of value. And the community has leaned into the store of value use case, which has made it much harder for people to build kind of payment solutions and other kinds of utility around it. That said, people are trying, like we're investors in David Marcus's company, Lightspark that's that's building a kind of a layer on top and this is sort of how people are approaching it they're building like sort of these layer two systems that in his case it's a system where you can pay in like stable coins like dollars but then ultimately know that you can settle in bitcoin and that provides this kind of universal ba base layer that's that's sort of trusted and independent and you know can i can't can't change the rules on you and things like that so there are people trying to do it i, I think a lot of that energy though in my opinion the developer energy has moved to Ethereum and other ecosystems that have been friendlier to this type of innovation. Part of the result of that civil war was that the the kind of the more tech focused people like me felt like we lost and, and moved over to Ethereum and other blockchains. Right. So th there's a question of just like there's a technology itself and then there's the culture around it and that. So the strongest, the strongest kind of Bitcoin bull argument, you know, kind of the the Bitcoin the Bitcoin masses, like the strongest form of the argument, I think. Or tell me if you disagree. The strongest form is like you actually want the store of value to not change, right? You 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 don't want gold to change, right? And in a similar way, you don't want digital gold to change. You just want it to be like permanent, enduring, unchanging. And then and then, and then that in and of itself is a big part of why it's a good store of value. It's just because you know that in five years and fifty years and five hundred years, it's going to be the same thing. 
And, you know, I think I think that's actually a pretty interesting argument. The other side of it, though, is, you know, if other systems like, you know, Ethereum, maybe most likely right now or Solana or others, you know, if they kind of if they grow up and they become useful in many different ways and they become, you know, as, 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 as they're doing, if they become kind of true Swiss army knives and if, you know, many thousands of applications get built on top of them and they're used for payments and like all kinds of other things, you know, aren't those also equally good stores of value, if not superior stores of value at some point, just because, you know, to your point, there'll just be far more investment going into them and they'll just like stay much more modern and there'll be a lot, you know, in general, anything tech related that stagnates dies, right? And anything that has like lots of innovation uh, flourishes. And if you're generally in tech, you want to bet on the thing. Like if you're betting on the thing that's going to be around in a decade, you want to bet on the thing that has a lot of, a lot of uh, technology investment going into it. Or at least, Chris, would you agree that that's the point counterpoint or would you? No, I agree. I think that, I think that is the strongest. I think that and the brand of Bitcoin, just it's a, it's a true global brand. And then the fact, yes, I agree with you that like the, the store value argument is that you do want this predictability and certainty and security that it does provide. I think the question, another way to frame the question you asked, though, is, is it like, you know, are they, are they, are they over kind of overtraining on gold? Cause I mean, that, that, that makes it more like gold, right? But is gold actually what you want in the modern internet world? Something that's, that is simple, predictable, but very hard to, hard to build on, right? I mean, it's sort of the analogy breaks down. And, and I think also like is gold, like is the dollar a better store of value or gold? And dollar is partly a better store of value to your point because it's also used as a means of exchange and a unit of account. And so I think one, I don't know, I'm not an ec- economist, but like you well, can the only, argue. That- if I can break it, the only, re- I mean, the reason the dollar is not a good store of value, obviously, is inflation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's, by the way, that's the strong commitment that Bitcoin makes that other blockchains don't make as strongly, which is 21 million. That's it. Yeah. You know, yeah. Ethereum's not making that claim. Yeah, I think, look, I think that, I mean, I, I, I guess I would say we lost the civil war. I was annoyed by it, but then in the end, I realized that the, that the way they're approaching store value to your point is smart because you do want that kind of certainty and conservatism, but I do think it also limits the range of applications to store value and that there's opportunities for other blockchains to kind of come in and provide these kind of more tech forward products. Good. Okay. The next question, and Ben, this this is a topic kind of close to your heart also, so please weigh in. Dave, two-part question. Dave Waring asks, it seems obvious that one of the uses of Web3 is allowing users to maintain digital property rights and be paid when their content is used. What are the early exciting examples in this space? And then Manny, who is an EAC, asks, what is what are the future of NFTs? Yeah. I mean, I, I have a chapter in the book on NFTs, which I argue, so it's a little more detailed, but I essentially argue that that if you look at different forms of media and how they've responded to the internet, that video games are by far the most sophisticated. And that they, so the internet is very good at, the internet likes to copy things. It likes to propagate information. And when the video game industry started off on the internet, their business model was to sell a video game, sort of sell the scarcity. And over time, they evolved that model into the dominant model today, which is to give away the video game for free, to let people stream it and copy it and let the memes propagate. And then to charge for an adjacent layer of value, namely virtual goods, right? And if you, whereas let's contrast that with the music industry, they evolved a little bit. They now allow streaming, but they still have this sort of scarcity model where if you go and share the song and do other things, they'll sue you over it, right? And developers who try to build, like, as we know from our business, if you try to build on top of, you know, like Turntable FM and these types of things that tried to build on top of music or with music as part of the product, had a very tough time legally. The result of that is that the video game industry went from about $20 billion in revenue at the beginning of the internet to $180 billion today, and almost every other form of media has been flattened down. 
right? So, so I think that like the, the proof is in the pudding, like it has worked very well. You want to lean into what the internet's good at. And so kind of one of my core arguments for NFTs is it does for other forms of media, what virtual goods did for video games. NFTs are virtual goods. They're an adjacent layer of value where you can monetize different things and then give away some of the media, right? And so you see people doing this with music. For example, we have a couple of startups who allow musicians to sell digital collectibles and behind backstage passes and other kinds of things that, that complement the, the music, right? And they can then get, either give the music away for free or be more lax about it, or maybe even sell the music, whatever. And it's an just additional revenue stream. So, so I, I think that people have overtrained on the idea that NFTs are like digital avatars, like PFPs, because that was the, I mean, one thing people remember is NFTs were invented or standardized in 2020. It's literally four years old. And even with the kind of downturn, there were 8.6 billion in sales of NFTs last year. So it's actually quite large for a four-year-old technology. But a lot of the original stuff was around these avatars. And in fact, it's a, it's a very general technology. It's a, an NFT is an atomic unit of ownership, but you can, you can put anything in that bucket. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of really interesting projects that we're involved with and that just generally in the space where people are sort of saying, what could that be? Another, another use of NFTs is talking about Farcaster earlier. It's your identity and social network. That's your NFT. Your, you control, you know, the NFT lets you control your name and your audience, and you can move the NFT from one application to another. So it's a, it's a very broad technology that I think people have so far have just, we've only begun to explore what you can do with them. Yeah. And I, I would kind of take a step back and say, okay, like if you look at a society or a country, you know, a nation or a world, then like, what are the fundamental underpinnings of civilization and like how it evolves and becomes better? And you know, two things that are really, really important are property rights. Like there's never been a civilization without good property rights. And then the other being kind of, you know, money and the fact that you can count on money and that your money and your property is protected. And, you know, when when kind of societies and civilizations degrade, it's usually in some form of, you know, no longer protecting your property rights or, you know, kind of hyperinflation and the degeneration of, of, of the society and the country. And I think that, you know, when we think about cyberspace, it's really important that we get kind of money and property right and that it's a strong foundation for building, you know, kind of a world that we all want to live in and that's kind of fair and everybody has a chance and all the kinds of things that we want in a society. And look, we're, we're seeing, you know, some, you know, breakdown <laughs> of those in the real world in the United States lately, where, you know, the, the rise of easy money has kind of priced young people. It's, it's kind of a theft of, of money from the next generation to the prior generation. And, you know, it's priced young people out of the housing market and we're seeing that. And then, you know, with the large increase in crime and so forth, you know, people like we're, we're seeing kind of the, the kind of eroding of a lot of the things that make a society great. So I think that as we start, you know, in digital world, or we move a lot of physical world into the digital realm, this is just like a fundamental underpinning to making the kind of world that everybody's going to want to live in. Good. Okay, let's go. We got two final questions. Uh, OK Doomer asks, you guys are going to love this question. And this guy goes a little bit back to our, our Peter Thiel debate earlier, but this is a different lens. So do you agree that, do you agree that the Web3 movement can, can become a legitimate third political wing 
i.e. a gray tribe combining progressive plus libertarian ideals. And those you will probably both recognize, I think gray tribe was, it's a biology, it's, a, it's an idea for our friend biology, or at least he, he, either, he either came up with it or he's been popularizing it, I'm not sure which, but it's a biology idea. And so basically it's, yeah, it's sort of the way I think I describe it is, is Chrissy, if you agree with this, is it's like, it's basically, yeah, it's basically tech, it's basically tech libertarian futurism. But not it's not conservative, right? It sort of has a forward thrust and it's sort of socially, you know, is, at least it's like modern, let's just say. But it's, you know, it is about, it is, you know, sort of an ideology around building and an ideology around technology and including technology enhancing human freedom. And so what do we think? I, I would love that. I feel like we're, it's, we're, I feel, I'm not sure it's, I feel like it's far away right now, but I think that the, to Bology's point, I mean, Bology, I think calls it more BTC. And I think that, I think there's more of a right. it's, political- Well, Balji is a tripartite. He said it's, it's a USG, CCP, BTC. Yeah. Is, is that right? Those are the three choices? Yeah. I think that, that, I think he's, my sense is Bitcoin is more of a political movement than Web3. Web3 is more of a tech movement. Okay. So to me, it's more like, I think of the Web3 kind of crypto blockchain as more like open source um, in that it began as a political movement like Richard Stallman in the 80s. Um, and that was sort of this anti-copyright, you know, socialist thing, but it morphed into a tech movement. Um, and that's, that's kind of how I put myself and the people I'm involved with is more of that. Like we're trying to, we're political in the sense that Linux is political, I guess, not in the sense that Bitcoin is, but obviously there's different kind of wings of the movement. He says, this is his tweet where he defines that anyway, I don't know. Grays were once part of blues, which is to say progressives, but have broken away and increasingly siding with the reds. See, for example, Elon's Twitter, or at least against blues. Grays are finally non-blue because blues have been waging total media war on grays and reds for the better part of a decade. And, you know, by this, this, means, this is biology. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's biology. But he's like, look, he's oh, like the blues, yeah. the, the blues, the progressives, right, the progressives, you know, and their, the, and their media arm have been, you know, just uh, shellacking tech you know, for a decade. Blues arguably lost that media war after 2021, after the population lost trust in them and Twitter got uncensored. They did capture big tech and the federal government for Blue Tribe, though, so they got something out of it. Now with the soft power of media gone, blues are moving into phase two, which is not media war, but money war. Remember, they have already weaponized the banking system abroad. See, for example, the Canadian truckers. Now they're bringing that war home and turning the banking system itself against gray and red. Right, so it's sort of, it's kind of saying like you have to, like if it's sort of his statement, if you're on the side of freedom, like you can't be blue anymore and you might not be willing to go red. And so there has to be a third way. I think that the third way is probably going to be against who's ever in power, I would think, just because none of them are going to go full biology. <laughs> but that, 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 that's interesting. Yes. What do you think, Mark? You're the, I, you're the most political here. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there's and there's different kinds of political. I mean, there's the actual there's the actual like actual political fight, which is actually a fight for like elected office. And you know, as you guys know, in the U.S., it's very hard. You know, in Europe, they have coalition governments. They have many more political parties, and so you can actually have multiple movements. You know, you can have four, five, six parties at a time in the U.S. because of how the electoral system is structured. Mechanically, you you tend to only have two parties, and so it, it makes it hard for you know it's a classic problem in U.S. politics. It's hard for a third party to break through. So there's a there's sort of a structural impediment, uh, and, and by the way, maybe that means that but biology's idea actually happens in Europe first. And, and look, there have been some precursors to it. There was the pirate party, you know, which actually became quite successful, I think, in Iceland. And you know, there's there's you know there's more and more sort of political. I would say there's the, the the European political landscape is shifting very quickly right now. So yeah, maybe that maybe that maybe that happens. And then yeah, look, I, I you know the other thing is just the other thing I would, th- I would think about a lot on this is just like 
you know, look, a lot of politics, like most people's politics for most of recorded history, right, are, you know, kind of people's offline lives, you know, kind of by definition, like, why do I care about politics? Well, it's like, you know, I've got my job in the real world, I've got my possessions in the real world, I've got my money in the real world, I've got my... You know, my friends are in the real world. I've got my, you know, it's it's like it's like you know my ability to speak and politically organize is in the real world. And then, you know, young people now, to the extent that they're living more and more of their lives online, it, it does make sense that you know, sort of internet politics are going to become more salient and possibly dominant in how they think about things, and and sort of therefore what what sort of internet policies get put in place, and 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 correspondingly, AI and and, and Web three policies are actually going to become more central to their entire concept conception of politics. Okay, and then uh, we can close on uh, the um, final question. So Vince asks, um, Chris, is there something you wish, because you you're, you're the nature of book publishing, you wrote the book a while back. Is there something you wish you could have included in the book? And will there be a follow-up? <laughs> I wrote, I know I, the book's 230 pages. I wrote almost twice that much and cut it out because I really wanted the book to be compact. So there's all of that. There was a, some like more technical stuff that I just thought was, it was, you know, it's one of the hard things with the book. Like this is meant for, to be a general audience book. And so I really wanted it to be, you know, accessible. And so I cut a lot of that out. I mean, my hope is that the movement grows and succeeds and then there's a need for a follow on book. I think at the moment though, this is probably it for the moment, but yeah, I mean, I think I'd need, I'd need more, more things to develop to have to feel like the need to explain more or something. I feel like I hope this is enough for now, but good. Fantastic. On that note. And obviously, of course, anybody who hasn't read the book uh, definitely should. The book is available in physical bookstores. The book's available on Kindle. And um, is it also on LibGen or should we not talk about that? It's on audio and then LibGen. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I <laughs> want it to be. Here, so I decided to go one question I get you. I think you asked me, Mark, is why, why a traditional publisher? I mean, it's, I think it's, Traditional publishers, you know, can still provide signaling value. They get you into bookstores. I just want to make it as accessible as possible. But uh, yeah, I'm hoping to have it sort of be everywhere and and uh, everyone who wants to read it can. So, I I would just say definitely read the book. You know, if you don't have time to read the book, read the introduction because it's a good kind of shorthand and will make you smarter than 99.9 percent .9 of the people on on this stuff. Good. Thank you, Chris. Right. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Okay, All thank right. you. Thanks, guys.